Welcome to The Word Podcast. I'm Seth Williams. And I'm Brendan Ward. And we're here to discuss all things local real estate, legal, title, market, and really anything else we can come up with. So stick with us on this journey as we talk about The Word. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we have Sean Bakhtiari. Mm-hmm. You nailed it. From Compass with us today, Mass and New Hampshire licensed and just general boss of the North. And <laughs> and we've all done several transactions together. Adjacent, um, I would say. Well, or transactions, for me. one transactions removed, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because Sean has historically handled a lot of our New Hampshire biz because I refuse to get in the car and drive there and secondly, be licensed there in general. And I appreciate that. I, uh, I tell all my fellow agents that when you start getting referral partners from your colleagues, that's yes. a vote of confidence. But then it still it angers me when you post under agreement in like Boston. I'm like, F you, Sean. <laughs> Where's the call? Yeah. It's because I'm greedy and I'll go anywhere. Yes. Well, at, the, that's, at this point in my career. That's okay. That's Have okay. car, will travel. <clears throat> right. Uh, yeah. I see, I've see. i seen you with those signs on the side of the road. So I no, can but understand. I, but I appreciate the referrals. I appreciate your trust in me. And uh, of course. all your clients are just as cool as you guys are. Like just well, good people. They're, they, they are all good people. Most of them are very good people, we'll say. Yeah. And they all moved to the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. Southern New Hampshire. Really? And, well, some and, people more so north. Than and I got to be honest with you. Like, I think New Hampshire gets this rep that it's like really inexpensive. It's not. Dude, not anymore. I think a lot of those transactions are like, they're, they're pretty high ASP average selling price. They're pretty high. They're Seven high, digits. They're high price. Well, well, they're, well, they're selling in mass, presumably for a high price. And then they're getting right. more for their money in New Hampshire. And sometimes it's a bigger house. Sometimes it's more space. But a lot of people are moving to New Hampshire because they want more privacy and they sure. want more land and they're trying to, you know, through COVID, they just realized how important privacy was in space. Or yeah, they know. have estate tax savings issues in yep. New Hampshire, mm-hmm. the, the land of no taxes, yep. right, is the most advantageous trust laws in the country. I think about or that Or some now. of, yeah. My wife and I talk about that, uh, the benefits of moving across the border mm-hmm. from a tax perspective. Yeah. If, in, you know, it's an option, but right now we're happy in Newburyport. So we've been on Plum Island for seven years, moved from Southie to Plum Island, and uh, mm. got the twin girls. They're three years old now. How was cool. that adjustment from Southie to Plum Island? It. Honestly, it's not that bad of an adjustment. We started our home search in Boston yeah. at our price point at the time. We, mm-hmm. were, we were realizing we can get a one bedroom with no parking. Yeah. yeah. So seven years ago, we started looking in beach communities. And so the next best thing for us was by the beach. And we bought what ended up being a three bedroom, two bath house for under half a million dollars with a yeah. garage. Incredible. Wow. You're still there. Still there. Yeah. With a 2% interest rate. We're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never leaving. We'd, yeah. we'd be priced out of Plum Island if we were buying today. The prices are just crazy. Yeah. Everywhere. We've, we've, we've said this a, a million times on the podcast. Like, a lot of us are not buying the house that we are in today at today's price, at today's rate. Yep. Very scary. Mm-hmm. We do the math. Payment might be triple. Yeah, I tell all my clients that if you're going to be at the, in your property for a decent amount of time, you're not going to be there and sell shortly after then that gives me confidence that you're not overpaying for a property. Mm-hmm. Well, Sean, we're, we're excited to have you on today. And as always, we just love to have local realtors on, talk a little bit about the micro market that is the North Shore market, the Southern New Hampshire market, as a lot of folks are fleeing from the city still and heading up north. The, the city market continues to be extremely volatile. And I think, and I'm sure you're seeing the same thing. We were just talking about it offline. The single family market for turnkey, nice properties, the demand is bonkers. It's insane. It's insane um, right now, yeah. And yeah. so um, I'd love to just today talk about your take on what's going on in the market. And then, of course, since you are a Airbnb entrepreneur in and of itself, <clears throat> so I'd love to just talk about a little bit of the property management stuff, the Airbnb stuff, and How'd you hop in in the market? What'd you do before? Tell us that story um, in your history, um, and then we'll hop into the rest of the market stuff. Cool? Yeah, let's just Sweet. see where the conversation goes. Yeah, but I um, I'll start from the beginning of my time in real estate, uh, which was after a 10-year career in finance. I worked in corporate finance in Boston for 10 years, and I was in a variety of different roles. I started in sales, then moved to marketing, and then there was a small new group that was established, client experience, and then I moved to that group. After about 10 years in corporate finance, well, really halfway through my 10-year career, I really knew that I wasn't going to be in corporate America my whole life, or I was hoping I wouldn't. And mm-hmm. so I started to do, you know, I started to create a couple side hustles and a couple side hobbies during the second half of my time in finance. And um, that's when I started to invest in my own property. So I bought my first short-term rental 
in 2018 with my brother in Hampton. After mm-hmm. your primary residence. After my primary yeah, yeah. residence. I bought my second short-term rental <laughs> a year later, still working full-time in finance. And then people started to take note of what I was doing and asked me if I could manage their short-term rentals. And I never really had a plan to manage other people's rentals. But then I looked around in my market and I realized there was no full-service property managers that existed. And there was probably an opportunity to build a business. After about 10 years in corporate finance, I quit to build a short-term rental company. I knew it was time to make a change a few years prior to actually making the change. Yeah. And, um, but and, and once you have that realization, yeah. something weird happens to you while you're working a full-time job in finance. Let me also say, I had, I had a really good experience in my corporate job mm-hmm. for, la- for those 10 years. And yeah. I learned a lot and I was surrounded by really great people. But my personality wouldn't allow me to like climb the ladder. I just couldn't do it for the long-term, for mm-hmm. my, from, really for my, my mental health. Once I realized that I was going to make a change, in a weird way, you start to care less. Not that it affects the way you work, but when you care less, you become more relaxed and you become more creative and you become happier. And um, anyways, I, uh, I was in Colombia um, for my friend's, well, my cousin's wedding. Mm-hmm. And I had this epiphany in Colombia. I'll never forget it. It was an epiphany at an outside bar with all my friends and family, my father included, and a bunch of like aunts and uncles and cousins. And we were just talking about life. And um, I was surrounded by a bunch of people older than me yeah. that, are, that were entrepreneurs themselves. And they pretty much told me what I already knew, which was like, what's the worst case scenario? You leave your job, you could always go back. You have the skills to always go back. And I'll never forget like that epiphany. I was so confident after that night yeah. of what I was going to do that um, when I got home a couple of days later, I put my notice in. Dope. And uh, that's awesome. Never looked back. But I was in a fortunate position because I had saved up a lot of money and I had the support of my wife and I had two income-producing short-term rentals. They weren't producing much, um, but they were producing enough to give me like a little bit of a leeway to grow a business. So I left with the sole purpose of building a short-term rental business. No plans on becoming a licensed realtor at all. And um, I guess my portfolio of clients' properties grew from four to 10 to 15 in about a year and a half, which is not huge. I was doing everything myself. I was even, this is the craziest part. I was even cleaning all the units myself because I was that, Stop. I was that, wow. I was that, that desperate for more money Yeah. because I left a good paying job with mm-hmm. good benefits. I mm-hmm. was cleaning units on my hands and knees, cleaning toilets. This is no joke. Just to make a hundred dollars to clean, to, to pad my bank account so that I could have a, a longer runway of mm-hmm. like time to build a business. Yeah. And then it got to a point where that's insane. It's insane. But I look back. It is at, until it isn't right. Yeah. Like I look back at that, at that time being like, I can't believe I did that. I will never clean a property again in my life. Not because I'm too like bougie, but because I'm not good at it. I'm no, a bad, like, I'm a bad like cleaner. cleaner. They're good cleaners are like insane. I'm, mm-hmm. a, I'm a very bad They come cleaner. in, they clean this place top to bottom in three hours. Every, every sheet is crisp. I, I just, I can't even imagine if, if you gave me a thousand dollars or like turn over their short term <laughs> rental and you have to do it by 4 PM, dude, I think you'd be getting a lot of maintenance requests. I, I, I remember injuring myself. <laughs> I was injuring myself cleaning. I was pulling muscles. My back was going up. This is no joke. I got to the point where like, I was so injured at one point. I, I needed my wife's help. I was like, can you come clean with me? Because I can't put the bed sheets on by myself. And right. so that was like the first year and a half after corporate finance, just doing Good everything you, myself, mm-hmm. building a business. Now we manage 64 short-term rentals. I've got an amazing business partner, Chris Petsy from Portsmouth. He owns about seven units himself. I own about seven units myself. All of our personal units are managed the same way our clients' units, uh, units are managed. Mm-hmm. Anyway, shortly after uh, leaving corporate finance and building a small boutique short-term rental company, I realized I should probably get licensed because I'm going to buy more properties. No doubt. People are asking me for help analyzing properties. So what year was that? I left finance in 2018. Dope. Got licensed a year, probably a year later, and then I joined a local local boutique um, uh, brokerage called Fru Realty, mm-hmm. now acquired by uh, Gibson Sotheby's. Sotheby's, yeah. And I was with them for about three and a half years until I joined Compass not too long ago. So I've been a licensed realtor full time for this is my fourth year. Four, so four we years. met pretty early on in your career, then. Yeah. Wow. I think a lot of a lot of people think I've been I've been a licensed realtor for longer than I have right. because I've been in real estate mm-hmm. for. A longer period of time. A longer period of time. And I'm also one of the people that like, I just post a lot on social media. Yeah, smart. People see a lot. Mm -hmm. People think I'm busier than I am. And I am busy, don't get me wrong. But, you know, the perception of social media isn't always like the 100% accurate truth. But... Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. That's that's shocking <laughs> to me. Are you saying I should that just people, go home now, right? It's you, not are all you real. People 
post things that aren't true on social media. No, no, I don't know. I'm saying people. <laughs> Not Sean. People see what people do and they and they, they blow interpret it, up it and they, yeah. they, yeah. uh, they exaggerated it. Yes. I'm very active on social media, so people think that I've been doing this my whole life. I've been a licensed realtor now. For, this is my fourth full year. Yeah, awesome. I, I, this this probably will shock you. I literally hate Instagram so much because <laughs> it's so frustrating, and I'm obsessed with trying to grow it right now. I have I have a couple annual goals, and of course, they're like number of transactions. Volume. One of my goals, sadly, is Instagram followers. It's a, such a sad goal. What are you at? Like 3,070 or something. Wow. This guy's got Celebrity. Like, yeah. Yeah. This, guy's, this guy's famous. My goal, yeah. my goal I'll, I'll just put it out there. My goal on January 1 was to go from like 2,500 to 5,000. Yeah. Which is not huge. And it sounds kind of um, Lofty. like... Lofty? No, it sounds like um, pretentious a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I hear you. And so I hate to like sound pretentious. And it's not really about followers, but it's about influence and so like mm-hmm. right my hope is that i could have a lot of followers so that i could share things that i think i'm knowledgeable about yeah. right and so by having a lot of followers you get to share more with the world and hopefully people get a lot of value out of it just like what's coming out of this podcast right hopefully there's some content well not hopefully there will be some content that people will fi- find valuable right and it gets to be shared on social media mm-hmm. so it's 100%. like and it's, it's one of those weird things people shy away from trying to grow on social media, but it's, it could make such a positive impact if it's done genuinely and right. Yeah. Well, and especially I, in your, your expertise, you know, in, I think it's something that a lot of people, especially in the investor world are questioning is like, is it the right move? And I think knowing a, a lot about short, short term rentals, you know, you have a lot of value to add in that space. It's, it's also a real sexy topic that I yeah. think people want to learn about, specifically the younger generation that's on mm-hmm. social. Yeah. Well, I mean, when I became a licensed realtor, I knew that I wasn't going to be as experienced as the most successful realtors at the time, but I knew I can, I can control two things. I can control one, service. I just wanted to provide the best service, be the most responsive, and just be there for my clients because, sadly, not everybody is responsive and provide good mm. service. So, like, bare minimum, provide good service. Secondly, I wanted to be more active on social media than my peers and I can control those two things. So I just controlled those two things from day one. And I think that's helped me so far in my young career. And you know, we'll talk about the market. I'm sure there's some things you can't control like mm-hmm. the market or rates or inventory, but you can control your service. You can control um, your general brand. You can, mm-hmm. And so like I, from day one, I just tried to control the things I could and mm-hmm. just try to do those things better than the average realtor. And if you have that like simple mindset, I think it goes a long way. Dope. I love that. I think it reminds me a lot of, of your story, Seth, in that, you know, you wanted to to provide better experiences yeah. in, in the real estate world. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. You know, um, I think I also went full-time in 2019, fun fact. Um, also quit my corporate job in 2019. Um, what was your catalyst? Um, so I... Jeez, it was 2000, yeah, two, 2013, 14. Um, no, you do, I think. I, I uh, was making good money. I was running stores uh, for Best Buy out here. And, um, you know, whether it was like HGTV or like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, the, a couple good books on investing and, and trying to just wealth in general, right? Uh, psychology of money. Like what are, all these good books about how to save, like obviously real estate is always a huge anchor in that, right? And... Um, so I kind of just went on a quest to invest in multifamily and, you know, I got super addicted to the bigger pockets, uh, ecosystem and, and, and the podcast. Right. And you, you listen to enough of those in the meantime, I'm driving, I'm spending a lot of time in the car and like you get a, you get a pr- some pretty good acumen if you're paying attention and you can get it. And then, um, I started just literally analyzing as many multifamilies as I could. And like, I'm sure now like you, like you're talking the Chelsea multifamily we we're just talking about, right? Like as long as the rents are a certain amount, like seventy five hundred, eight thousand dollars north, you know that place is making money. It might not be for everybody, even at a million dollars. It might not be for everybody, but it's going to make money. Maybe not at seven percent interest rate. I'd have to rerun it, but you know. Um, and so I just got really good at analyzing properties, and then I was like, okay, I I want to buy one, and uh, or just ran into a bunch of bad agents who are most like, and you know the difference. Like, there's a lot of like. I'm a residential real estate salesperson. I know nothing about multifamily investing. I'm just going to treat this like it's another house with one apartment and they're selling it to the owner occupant demo, not the investor demo. And there's a, there's a huge difference. I found that there was this niche out there that was lacking and just a, with a little bit of due diligence, I was like, screw this, I'm gonna get my real estate license. 
And so I did, I did it part-time for like three or four years. I worked 40 hours in real estate and 40, 40 hours in my real job, <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes 50 and 50, seven days a week for a long time. You know, eventually I got promoted. I was working in upstate New York and Connecticut. And so literally every Tuesday I would leave Massachusetts. I'd go, I'd go spend two, three days in upstate New York and Connecticut running stores and whatnot. And then, you know, I got busy. So like literally at the same time, my wife ended up leaving her work for some family health reasons um, to take care of her dad. And uh, I took advantage of that. I was like, hey, can you go to the smoke inspection? Like, can you go to this home inspection? Like, I was like just sending her everywhere. And she's like, I, I hate this. Like, <laughs> you were doing what, what I was doing with short-term rentals. You were just doing it all, trying to make trying it to, work. Trying to involve my wife. Early on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make, make them do the hard work with me, right? And uh, yeah, the pipeline got big. And I was like, dude, what am I doing? Like, I know for a fact, if I just spent all of my time here, I can make way more money. And to your point, it was about service. Like you can't give the best level of service if you're not present at every single wake and, wake and turn, right? So I just love real estate. It's know, like, it's, it's, so, people, it's so fun. People think, I think some people think when they see what realtors do, again, on social media, Glam. it's all glamorous. Yeah. I work twice as much now, at least twice as much now than I Maybe more. use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I work seven days a week, number one. Yep. And you have to. I, I definitely work twice as much, but I enjoy what I do. So it doesn't feel like work to me. To my family, it, it it probably feels like work because I'm gone more yes. and I'm busier more. So that's always challenging. But at this stage in my career, at this age, I really just love what I do. And I'm so competitive with myself, not with others. So I'm just trying to test myself. Like, how much can I give to others? And thus, how much can my business grow? And it's really just an in, internal test. And that's mm-hmm. fun because I don't have sports like I used to. So now the, right. new, the, the new sport now is real estate. Yeah. Well said. Well said. It'll be interesting because like they, they, you know, this is, this is your five, right? If you're tracking with the stats of us being full time, they say 87% of realtors fail within the first five years. Yep. I think this I, is going to be one of those really turnkey years because of how challenging this year is proving to be. There's going to be a lot of people leaving the industry, lenders and Association realtors. of Realtors already uh, <laughs> down 60,000 members, I think this year. Tom Ferry stat? Yeah. In, in, <laughs> you saw that? For yeah. the listener... What is challenging about this year? Very challenging market right now for two main reasons, in my opinion. Reason number one, most importantly, there's such a lack of inventory, especially in residential areas, more so outside the city. Mm-hmm. Such a lack of inventory, and there's way more buyers than there are homes for sale. So there's a small, there's a large amount of buyers all competing for a small amount of homes. That's number one. Yeah. Number two, rates are higher than they were. Mm-hmm. We're probably in this around the sevens today. And two years ago, we were in the threes or fours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're looking back two years ago and comparing today's rates to two years ago. And today's rates are still below the 30-year average from, right. from my understanding. Yes, so, absolutely. So we're still, the rates are still okay. They're not mm-hmm. as good as two years ago, but mm-hmm. they're okay. But people... But two years ago was an anomaly. Yeah. Like that's a once-in-a-lifetime yeah. situation. Exactly. The biggest challenge, the biggest reason that there is a lack of inventory is because homeowners, if they were to sell their home at a three-ish percent interest rate, they don't have a place to go. And if they buy another place, they're going to buy it higher at a higher price and at a higher rate. So they're just staying put. So the big challenge today is inventory. No doubt. The lack of inventory is something that I feel incredibly passionately about. And I think especially in suburban neighborhoods and exurban neighborhoods or however you want to describe sort of the further you get out from the city, but it's a zoning problem, right? Like you see these communities with two and three acre lot requirements and they make it hard to build stuff. And we're lucky that, inter- no, not that we're lucky, but like imagine if interest rates were at three right? and we had this lack of inventory, we would, you know, there'd be twice as many buyers and we still can't get it's- offers accepted. So like we're, in some ways, the interest rate is helping a little in terms of like moving people through the process, but it's hurting the inventory. But I think the bigger, more fundamental issue is in the Northeast especially, we have a limited amount of land. We have incredibly restrictive zoning all up and down the East Coast, essentially. And New Hampshire, Massachusetts, they don't make it easy to build housing. I was at something this morning and they were trumpeting you know, wetland bylaws that they've put into place. And, and all I could think of is like, you're making it more expensive for people to build housing. Your, your next slide is on housing unaffordability. And you're talking about like all these measures that you've taken that essentially make it more expensive. And it's just mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, so yeah. So sorry. Yeah, you, no, you, my soap, my soapbox. No, I, I like how you go into that because people don't go that deep into the reason for lack of inventory. And that's 
that's one hundred percent one of the main reasons. Especially, reason, especially, yeah. in our, especially in our market. Yeah, yeah, it's it's terrible. We've been tracking a lot with uh, how many homes are just on the market in Massachusetts, like from MLS pin. <clears throat> in the last, like, pretty much all year, we've gone from somewhere from like twenty six hundred homes total, in all of MLS pin single family, to like thirty three hundred. Right now, it's actually four thousand five as of right oh, now. That's massive. Um, wow. Good week. And uh, <laughs> well, get your buyers out there. You know, well, it's Wednesday, so not, no, nothing's under agreement yet. That's it. <laughs> we talk about that too, right? Like the the numbers always flex up midweek because you get new listings, but no one's marked their stuff pending yet, or 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 sometimes contingent still in there. But more specifically, what's interesting if you look at quote unquote affordable homes, whatever whatever that actually means around here, like and you just snapped a chalk line at seven hundred k. There's like 120 homes in Essex County at all times under 700 grand. And what's yeah. the population and of Essex County? Like 1.6 million? I'll default to you on that specific. Oh, setup. no, 800,000. I can't remember. No, but it's, I think it's more than that. <clears throat> um, certainly large. I mean, that's, I, I guess I'd still call that affordable. Most, most people are either like the sub 550, sub 5, or they can go to 7, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, listen, the affordability thing is an issue. We've spent far too much time on zoning. I don't know. What's your take on the zoning? Like, what's the solve? You're asking the wrong guy, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah. I don't have too much to say about the zoning. I just know it's a challenge. And, um, it was yeah, such a political s- answer. I loved it. But also, like, some of the municipalities, yeah. to, to Brennan's point, just make it difficult to add more housing and build more housing. And that's, you know, maybe that's one of the one of the resolutions. You, well, I, would ch- uh, I am fact-checking. And love that. we will come back to that in a minute. But <laughs> one of the things I would implore you, Sean, to get more involved in, because I think it is potentially devastating to your business is the North Shore Realtors, and I'm sure Merrimack Valley Realtors also track. They have legislative committees that are tracking. Uh, they, they call them Airbnb regulations, but short-term mm. rental regulations. I know in the town that I live in, we just banned all non-owner-occupied short-term rentals except for two streets. Yeah, we, my town is going through the same process. Mm. Every, every town. Ordinance. Every yeah. town. And I'm, I'm in all those conversations. I'm at all the town meetings. Is it banned, or, or is it through, like, attrition they're going to shut it down? Nope. Can no longer. So you're operating today as a, as a, a short term rental, mm-hmm. and let's say I bought a vacation home in mm-hmm. this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you're going to come in as the municipality and say I can no longer operate my business. Yes, it's so, a violation of a zoning bylaw, and they can do that. Like, and that's not the check, risk of the business. And yeah. they, they can't. They, that's so. My understanding is what like all these discussions that have always come up. It's going to be like we're, like Salem, Massachusetts is a great example. In Salem, you cannot Airbnb anymore. Period. But they have a reasonable elective body in Salem that is a little more sophisticated than these small towns. So in, in Salem, you cannot file for any new permit. But if you are run an existing Airbnb, go for it. So they're going to shut it down through attrition, mm-hmm. right? It's like, it's like Pedex Island. Yeah. If you have a cottage out there, it's cool. We, we're not going to let you transfer it anymore, right? So Most of these municipalities, though, didn't have any structure in place. So Salem already had a, 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 a um, licensing requirement that allowed them to be able to do that. But the majority of the municipalities have nothing, right? Like mm. Airbnb didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. So Salem was proactive in getting something, and then they amended it as it developed. Yeah, short-term but, rentals, they're still so new in the grand scheme of real estate that mm-hmm. the vast majority, especially of smaller municipalities, still don't have a grasp of how they affect their own towns. And so they're mm-hmm. trying to be proactive about it, sometimes in the right way, sometimes in the wrong way, in my opinion. We're going to see an evolution over the next several years of, of where this goes from like a small municipality standpoint. And so the topic of conversation that I always have with re- short-term rental investors is think about the worst case scenario. If you're right. buying in an in X market, if that market were to ban or restrict short-term rentals, what's your backup plan? And so you right. always have to be thinking right. about that in, in your underwriting of short-term rental deals. Are short-term rentals really new? Like I think people have been vacationing in some sort of one week long increments on the beach since the beginning of freaking time. The internet has just made it different. Yeah, that's true. My, my parents have been doing short-term rentals their entire lives. They've you been know going to Salisbury Beach for a week right. every single right. year. And so, so now that you have the internet where you have two, different th- two to three different things, the municipalities can investigate better. You have the neighbors who can complain easier and you have more advertisement of such. I just think it's, it's, it's opened the exposure and the, and the lens to it so much more. But it's also made it easier for people to 
operate a short-term rental with for sites sure. like Airbnb for and sure. Verbo. Before but, Verbo existed, it was, you know, you're just doing it by word of mouth. Or yeah, I'd call, I'd call or the, the local, ads. Bro- I'd call yeah. the local broker and yeah. I say, I'm looking for a vacation home. Sean, what do you have? Oh, I know Susie, Billy and Bobby, they all rent for, you know, the summer, right? So like it's been around and that was never like illegal. It was never outlawed by the municipality, right? Like that's, we're talking like zoning, like, I don't know what, I think there's an evolution of where people are renting, right? So, like, there's all... Anywhere. And when Sean talked about the markets that he's in, so I heard Hampton Beach, Salisbury Beach, Myrtle Beach, and... Southwest Florida. um, Cape Cape Coral. Cape Coral Beach, right? So all of those have the word beach in them, right? All of those are vacation... Cape Coral's just a town. Well, I mean, it's a little less town than, you know, Winthrop. That's true. Right? So they're more destination oriented right that that have tourism as a part of the local economy mm-hmm. whereas some of these towns like boxford right like is anybody yeah. going to want like but you can rent i bet if we looked on vrbo right now there's probably a place in boxford we I could rent or yeah. topsfield like so it has Top. changed vacationing mo- in topsfield massachusetts well if your family lives there and you have to go for christmas uh, and you don't want to stay with I, your mother-in-law it makes a lot of listen, sense don't to do project it, right? don't project now, you what make, you want to do you make an awesome point this is a con- also another conversation i have with all my investors yeah. is is like when you're looking at where to invest, it's, mm-hmm. it's probably wise to invest in places that have always been vacation destinations Correct. where those economies rely on the revenue generated by visitors. And, and so, they're not going to shoot themselves in the foot and do some crazy legislative. And so, like, uh, yeah, so like yeah. nationwide, there are a lot of towns that everyone knows about that are, um, you know, heavily, that heavily rely on vacationers. Orlando, mm-hmm. Florida, mm-hmm. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, more locally, Hampton Beach and Salisbury Beach, there's a much less likelihood that these municipalities are going to ban short-term rentals because it affects the entire economy. economy. Sure. Yeah, but, if, but like in Newburyport, where I live, they're not reliant on visitors mm-hmm. right. in a good way or a bad way. They don't need short-term rentals for the, the overall success of the business. I, I, but I Overnight oh, visitors. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. They like day visitors in Newburyport. Exactly. I, you know, I could talk all day about <laughs> that, which I won't, but... <laughs> But um, but there are certain towns like a Newburyport, mm-hmm. for example, or um, even a Conway, supposedly in right. New Hampshire, where if they ban short-term rentals, they feel like the the it really hurts the economy long term. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as an investor, I think about investing in places that have less risk of these types of bans yeah. in the future. Yeah, absolutely. What's your take on how short-term rental markets affect home ownership for the local community? But like, just for instance, where I have a, a short-term rental. In uh, in Florida, like the prices skyrocketed like four or five x in the in probably the last ten years. It affects affordability. The short answer is yeah. it affects affordability. Allowing short term rental investors to invest in properties to be used as short term rentals definitely affects affordability. The affordability resolution isn't banning short term rentals. It's probably a combination of several things. It's not mm. just pe- people. Well said. People like to point at short term rentals. As like the bad guy, yeah. But affordability, like in Newburyport, for example, Newburyport's unaffordable. Not because of short-term rentals, because it's been unaffordable. Because Newburyport has become this amazing town for all these amazing reasons, and the waterfront, and the walkable downtown, and the schools, and the, like. It's not short-term rentals that made Newburyport unaffordable. It's Newburyport as a whole has grown into density awesome too. Place, yeah. And zoning, well said. And zoning, yeah, but people, exactly. people like people. It's like the easy thing to point at short-term rentals. Yeah. That's why, but. If you just take away short-term rentals from a community, you're not going to see prices go down or flatline. It's still going to go up. But let's walk this example back because I, I disagree with it to some extent, right? So, like, the communities where short-term rentals are most popular are typically resort communities that I think have changed over the last 10 years or so, especially with COVID and remote work, right? Like, now it makes more sense to live in Siesta Key or Cape Coral Right, because you can telecommute from your job, you can have a much better lifestyle, you can have a different life than if you're in New York City or New Jersey or Chicago, right? So it, it I, I think the demographics have changed as well, and these resort typically previous resort communities are now also becoming more long-term communities that are driving the prices up as well. So if they had stayed resort communities, I don't think anyone would be having this affordability discussion because they were always investment in second homes. But now that we're getting more people coming in trying to live as primaries, now it's, well, now it's unaffordable. Um, but I think that's more a demographic change in the communities where these are mostly located. That's, a, that's actually a really good point that no one's articulated that well to me. And oh. I think a lot of it has to do with, the, like you said, the shift in uh, the work from home. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Bad. 
In, in this general, like, especially younger folks, right, that are looking at life as wanting to be fulfilled, right? Like, nobody wants to go have a job that they hate and drive into work every day and, and just live in this monotonous life where people are saying, hey, I can do this a different way. I can have joy and I can support my family and I can do all the things I want to do. And I don't have to have this, like, 1950s version of life. I can I can do it in, in on my terms. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to take that back to Newburyport and start... Using that in my little pitch. Yeah, I think you should. Um, <laughs> I won't even charge you for that. <laughs> we just spent a lot of time on short-term rental affecting local market, all that type of stuff. Let's just talk global real estate market. Talk to us about what you've been seeing in your local market. How much of your business percentage-wise is Massachusetts versus New Hampshire, just for context? I look at that probably quarterly, and it's almost exactly 50-50 right now. Wow, 50, okay, cool. 50% in Mass, 50% in New Hampshire. When I became licensed in... You know, as a resident of Massachusetts, I assumed most of my business was going to be in the state of Massachusetts. Mm. But what's happened with everyone this border market, shops, man? A, yeah, a lot of people border shop, but in this market especially, um, and through COVID, people have been wanting more space. They've been wanting more privacy. Yeah. So I've seen a lot of people sell in Mass and buy in New Hampshire, 100%. and a lot of people that I work with buy vacation homes. And New Hampshire is, in my opinion, unbiasedly one of the best states to buy a second home or a vacation home in because you got the beaches, the mountains, the lakes. So New Hampshire has been a big part of my business. And so I'm, I'm in southern New Hampshire, New Hampshire seacoast. I go up to the lakes and mountains region. And um, in, in Massachusetts, I'm, I'm primarily in the North Shore, greater New Bayport, greater New Bayport. And I'll go into Boston occasionally if it makes sense for my clients and I. In addition to what we already talked about um, regards to how challenging the market is because of inventory and rates, I like to talk about buyer expectations. Like the expectation as a buyer today is that it's going to be a process as a buyer because of how competitive homes are. And we were talking offline that um, the turnkey single family homes, especially in the North Shore and Southern New Hampshire, they are getting multiple offers after one weekend with most of the contingencies waived. And as a buyer, if you're going to compete for these types of properties, the mindset is that you know, if you can comfortably do this, to be aggressive with your price, as comfortable as you can be, and to make decisions onto whether or not waiving a home inspection will help you or doing a home inspection for informational purposes will help you. And then I think the last thing that not a lot of people think about as new buyers is being flexible with your closing date. If mm. you can provide the seller of that home flexibility in closing, that'll give that seller more time to find their next place. Because when people sell a home, usually they need a place to go. Not everyone already has a place. So a lot of my buyers, we, you know, we talk about if you have the ability to allow the seller, you know, patience and flexibility on the closing date, that might put you ahead of some of the other buyers out there that need to close within 30 to 45 days. I completely agree. I hate flexibility in closing dates. Yeah, I know. Um, because... <laughs> so does the bank. Yeah, everybody does because from our side of the transaction, we need some predictability. And, you know, I, I find when things are not in stone and up for decision later, that's when... Uh, We've we, talked about this a lot. <laughs> but would you say the alternative is a quick close with a lease back as an yeah. alternative Yeah, I, I, I like those better um, with some concrete dates mm-hmm. um, and obviously flexibility on the lease backs. Um, but, you know, nobody wants, to, nobody wants to figure this stuff out before we get into contract. Everybody wants to leave it for everybody else to figure out later. Um, and I think the more see, you see how he looked at me. No, like you're actually really good at this. At you I'm, know, I'm getting I've things, been coachable, but getting things in place. Like the more you can decide before the other side brings their lawyers in, especially in Massachusetts, like the better off you are. Yeah. So like if you can get in your offer, the terms of a UNO, you can get in your offer. You know, the more you get in there. I can't then come in and say, well, we're not agreeing to that. That's crazy. Right. Right. If you've already signed something that says you agree to this, like I'm bound. That's really good advice, actually. Yeah. yeah. So the more you can do that, the better. I think a lot of realtors will take the lazier route and just get something signed and then let the attorneys do, yeah, do the, the hard work. Do the hard work. But I think if you're willing to do the hard work up front before an offer is signed, it makes the whole transaction easier from the realtor's perspective, the consumer's perspective, yeah. and the attorney's perspective. Well, especially if you have multiple offers, right? If you have 25 offers, and you know you have as a seller specific terms. Like I've encouraged Seth, and, and I think you did it for a little while. Like yeah. put a draft UNO in, right. in MLS and say, here's what the seller's willing to accept. Right. Like get get a get a leg up a on one it. One pager. Right. It's super easy. I'm gonna use that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. We did it a couple of times previously when the market was super hot, and we we're just like, we want this. Mm-hmm. These are the terms. We want it for free. 
we will do it for this long. For clarity, a UNO, just so the listener knows. Oh, one dollar. Use an occupancy. Oh, yeah, good. Thank you. Use an occupancy. Yeah. yeah. Lease back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, commonly referred to. But, you know, but this is what lets a seller stay in the house after they right. sold it, right? So right. The Which is important right now because part of the inventory issue is getting sellers off the fence, mm-hmm. right? So there's yeah. so many. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes you just have to bring, you have to bring the horse to water, so to speak. Like, yeah. hey, hey, listen, I like to get properties signed to sell and we'll, we'll just hold the listing. So I can be on market if you get your offer accepted tomorrow, today. I, I just have to go live, right? Um, and that gives the seller a lot of confidence because if I'm writing an offer on your property, right? And you say, oh, you have to sell? I say, yeah. Um, what's the first question you're going to ask me? Is it live? <laughs> is, it under is, it, is it under agreement? Uh, no, Sean, unfortunately, it's not yet. And I need a month to get it cleaned yeah, and up and like, oh, well, when photos when you, taken. Okay, it's no problem. When are you going to go live? Um, uh, probably 14 days. I'd be like, dude, you know what? Kick rocks. Call me in 14 days. I'm going to either take the next offer or keep this thing on the market. And I'm going to let you freak out and try and pay for it, right? So we like to get it all ready. To, so all I got to do is push live. So I can say, listen, here's my draft MLS as part of my offer. I can be on tomorrow. Um, and that works really well. But then you still can't get your offer accepted, right? And so it's a lot easier switch to flip to this say, like, Sean, hey, listen, what do you think? The market's really hot. You just saw that we got beat by 29 offers on that house. Do you think that maybe we should try and go live and then let you shop with a clear mind? Well, we're going to say your terms, just like you just, we just saw what happened. Let's do the same thing. Let's set our intention. Let's set our terms. And by the way, if you get an extra 30 or 40 grand, doesn't, are you going to be able to put that down in the next property? Yes, I will. And like, boom, then the dam breaks. And now we're contributing to solving the inventory crisis to a degree, mm-hmm. yeah, no, you know, one step at a time. I think part of the inventory issue is educating sellers about the options they have and the leverage that they have as sellers. If you list your house for sale, you don't have to sell it. You will sell it under your terms. That makes sense so that you could move on to what's whatever. Um, Especially in this market, right? Like market. You can direct your terms in this market yeah, as a it's, seller. It's scary to be a seller for a number of reasons, but um, I think educating sellers of their options as sellers in this market, I think eases their mind to some extent because I agree. buyers out there will do anything to mm-hmm. win a seller over. Mm-hmm in a low inventory market. So sellers have so much leverage. They could, they could choose their terms. You know, I say that lightly, but they could essentially choose their own terms of the, right. of the sale. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point. But, but I do, I do think you're right. It's like, it might not necessarily be, it's price is obviously super important and you got to be in the wheelhouse. No one's taken usually 30, 40, 50, less thousand because you have flexibility. Right. But if you're two, three, four, five, six, 10 K and you're close, but you're the most flexible, the seller will take, take that bait. Right. Yeah. Well, it comes back to like how much is everything worth, right? Like, correct it is knowing that you can have the time to find something worth ten grand. Like for most people, maybe you know. I think w- where do you start to draw that line becomes yeah. the question as the seller. Yeah, like, that's a good question. Yeah, I think like I don't know if we've talked about this in too much detail, but it it my mind automatically goes here, which is which is the buyer's hesitation to be a buyer in today's market, and I think of a lot of the headlines that people see, and even what we talked about today might scare buyers, buyers from buying because it's such a challenging market and so competitive and rates are high and prices are high. And so like, I always try to, uh, well, I don't try to, I put myself in the buyer's shoes because I am a buyer myself. I bought a few months ago and I hope to be a buyer again sometime in the near future as I, we know a good that. agent if you're looking in um, <laughs> Boston, Suffolk right? County. Yeah, yeah. But like, no, yeah, my, um, you know, the, I think maybe the topic of conversation could be if you're a buyer today, how can you comfortably approach the home buying process as a sophisticated agent how are you sort of doing that onboarding with buyers and in prepping them for the roller coaster ride they're about to go on i just try to be it sounds so simple mm-hmm. and it might might come off t- like too simple but the truth is just to try to come off as a real person like I'm, I'm a real estate salesperson but i always tell people i'm not selling real estate i'm helping people buy real estate i just want to be there to help people in their home buying process, understand what their concerns are, understand what their criteria is for a home, and then educate them on today's market and what they might need to do to be competitive in a, in a multiple offer situation. But it's really just to, you know, to funnel it down to one point. It's just setting proper expectations. Sometimes the expectation is a hard hitting truth for buyers, especially for buyers that have bought in previous markets where like they had leverage to negotiate, but it's all about how you deliver the communication. And the truth is yeah. it's a, challenging market, but mm-hmm. it's not a bad time to buy. If you're a patient buyer, there's deals out there. And if you buy today at higher prices and higher rates, it doesn't mean it's going to be a bad buy, especially if you're holding onto the property for a long time. 
And rates go up and down. You could always refinance in the future. Or um, So, like, the point is, it's just setting proper expectations and putting myself in the shoes of a buyer because I am a buyer in this market. And, you know, I think... Yeah, so it's really just kind of like setting up, setting up those expectations. You, you said it, like I, I say this to clients all the time, like equity is relative, right? Equity is relative to when you need to recapture it. So if this is the seven to 10 year home, like what does it matter if you're going to pay X over asking? Or I, I bought my last couple of properties for over asking price and I, I yeah. did it. I tried and I submitted an offer soon with like clean terms. I've waived home inspections. Yep, same. Because I wanted that property. And I appraisals. And I did, yeah, and I didn't care over paying for it because I knew I'm holding on to it for a long right. time. And if I didn't get it at that over asking price, one year from now it's going to be worth more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, when rates go down, if rates go down, are prices going to go up or are they going to go down with this inventory position? What did Barbara Cochran say? She said that now is a great time to buy because buy now because everyone's going to rush to the market when even worse than it is right now. And like we think the twenty nine offers is bad, dude. It it's actually it actually can get real scary. I know. You know what I mean for for the buyers out there. So yeah. so, anyways, my message to the buyers is, be patient. Work with it sounds again simple. Work with a local, skilled, reliable agent that can guide you through the process. Local was the key. Local skilled agent. <laughs> and um, there's good deals to be had. It's scary because prices are high. It's scary because rates are high but rates aren't high relative to the average historical rate of around 8%. And you could always refinance in the future. And if I'm buying today and if Seth's buying today, then hopefully that's a vote of confidence for other yeah. buyers. But the point is, if you're going to be holding onto that property for a while, you should be okay. If it's a quick buy and maybe quick sell, then that's when it gets yeah, a little get scary. Caught. That's when it gets a little scary. No doubt. You said something interesting at the beginning that, that we haven't touched base on too much, and I'd love to dive in a little deeper. You said that it, I think one of your last roles in your corporate position was a customer experience mm. role. You know, How did that role help you develop into the advisor, I would say, more than a salesperson advisor that you are to your clients? I think it just taught me the importance of the customer experience. When you work in a small customer experience department um, in a big corporation, you get firsthand witness of, of what contributes to happy customers. And as a real estate investor at that time, while I was working in client experience, I was getting experience from other realtors and they were, they were good. I worked with a bunch of good realtors, but I always thought to myself, if I was a realtor, can I elevate the experience? And I think real estate had and might still have a reputation of being like somewhat car salesman. Car, no, no offense to car salesman. You were going to say woman. that, right? Yeah. I think it has had that reputation and still does in some ways. So I I always wanted to like transform the industry and transform the perception of the industry that real realtors can be true advisors, just like a financial advisor is or a CPA is, and that they could help you in the home buying process or help you in the investing process, not just sell you something. So yeah, when I made the conscious decision to become a licensed realtor, I focused on providing really great service, not just, here's the thing, not just to consumers, but to other colleagues, other realtors. I told myself I wanted to be the nicest realtor in Newburyport, and I was so naive at the time. I was like, everyone's just going to be nice. No, they're all they're all actually <laughs> terribly mean. I've been people. I've been so surprised. I was like, I was like, why is everyone nice to each other? Ego in this business but, um, man, is outrageous. But the, I was so naive, and I think that naivety was played a really good uh, positive role for me. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to be the nicest realtor in town, so that if my clients have a similar offer to someone else's, hopefully they just want to work with yeah. the, the nice realtor. And yep. so I always it, and I can see why it's hard to. S- to stay nice all the time, but I want to continue to try to be just kind to other realtors and obviously nice and kind and helpful to consumers. But I think people just think consumers, 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 but your your relationships with other realtors and other attorneys and other vendors Mm -hmm. is almost as important. Do you think that it is meanness or like a scarcity mindset? Like they just can't help it. Like they just don't see the world as abundant and they're so scared that like they don't know where the next deal is coming from that they lash out. Like I... I don't know. Mm. I, I like to be optimistic about people generally, except I, ones. Just, just for full full disclosure, I'm razzing Sean about working in my market. <laughs> oh. um, but I do think a lot of people have scarcity mindset. Yeah. Even when I first started in this business, and I like launched a new CRM, I like I wouldn't tell anybody what I was running. Like I would never share my secrets. And and here we are, like giving away everything, everything for free, right? So, yeah, I have other realtors ask me like what my opinion is on projections of short-term rentals for their clients. And I tell them, yeah, I got nothing to lose. And right. plus I want to keep a relationship strong and grow, grow a relationship. And honestly, if that other realtor's client 
buys a short-term rental that I helped with projections, maybe they hire my company to manage it. I do believe that if you are good to other people, it does come around. Reciprocity, for sure. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I'm sure I told this before on the podcast, but a couple of months ago, I had a, a realtor actually from Compass hit me up. Um, he was listening to something to Winthrop, not a Winthrop agent, so to speak, right? Um, and he's like, hey, I'd love to get your take. We were like Instagram friends. He's like, I'd love to get your take. Um, I actually think he posted it and I DM'd him like, bro, what's going on? Tell me more details. And he's like, I actually would love for you to come check it out. Um, I have some questions on where I should list it. And I was like, I, I can come tomorrow. I, I went the next day and it was a weird scenario where one of the bedrooms was completely gutted in the house. And unfortunately, the seller got taken advantage of by a contractor and they were just like forced to sell, didn't have the cash to finish it, all this type of stuff. And uh, I had a contractor client who had literally the week before just lost on a, on a property you know, it was probably going to do some sort of like FHA type low money down financing. So experiencing some headwinds. Right. And I go, dude, can I call my client? He's like, yeah, I don't care. And the sellers were there. We literally put a deal together in the living room an hour later. And like, if you weren't like the nice agent, it was like, I'm not going to help you price this. You're in my hood. Right. But it's also like, like what? In that situation, because you are open to helping others, it ended up being a win-win, win-win for the seller, the buyer, Everybody. the listing mm -hmm. agent, the buyer's agent. Yeah. We look like rock stars. Everyone's happy. And the client, and like, so literally my client, we put it in contract. He went in post PNS and like renovated this room, got a seller credit, did all in like past appraisal. Like we just, we finagled it. Yeah. It was probably a somewhat challenging sale because of the condition, but a challenging market for the buyer. So everyone yeah. came together mm -hmm. in great terms. Right. Yeah. That's but it wouldn't have happened without the relationship with the agent. But there was no Agreed. relationship. It just started. Yeah, we, really we were we were like um, we just knew each other. You were just yeah. you were just nice and open and that's it. Yeah, I, it's crazy. I do. I you know obviously not everyone has that mindset, but I think one takeaway for realtors who are listening to this is if we you know could all just help each other, that'll help yeah. our clients. And yeah, the end of the game is to help our clients. So if we help each other, we help our clients. And I think that's like kind of like the mindset I've always had. No doubt. So Airbnb wise, what would you say? Your two to three tips of advice. I know that's a very vague question. What what do you what do you tell somebody who's got an Airbnb and they're looking to improve revenue? YouTube, Sean Bakhtiari. <laughs> I've got two Airbnb. Um, what do we call them? Playlists. Yeah, video series. I've watched two them. Airbnb video series. But yeah, a lot of the topics I try to talk about there are probably questions that well, they are questions that come up so commonly. So the question now is tips to help the Airbnb investor. Tip number one is invest in professional marketing. So that means professional photos, not your iPhone. Yep. Drone photos if you're close if you're close to amenities like lakes and mountains and oceans. Floor plans so the viewer knows the layout of a property because if you have kids or if you've got elderly grandparents, the layout matters. Number two, be on the most popular websites. Obviously, the first website that comes to mind is Airbnb, but mm -hmm. the you know arguably the second most popular website is Verbo, Booking.com. So if you can be on the most popular platforms and you have professional marketing that sets the foundation of hopefully a really successful short-term rental. Third, a dynamic, smart pricing strategy. If you have a set it and forget it calendar price, you're not going to maximize the income that your property can earn. Alternatively, you could use these online smart pricing tools. I use Price Labs. Yeah, same. You, you could set parameters, you could set rules, and Price Labs will take your property and price it just like hotels price their hotel rooms. They're priced based on supply and demand, based on seasonality, based on local events, based on holidays. And if your prices are changing based on demand, that'll help you maximize income and minimize vacancies. So those are, those are three. What about decor? Oh God, don't get me started. So I, you see, j just three is hard. Yeah. So here's the fourth. <laughs> a unique concept in design. I try to talk about this a lot because back in the day, just four, back in the day, four years ago, you could just buy any property, put it on Airbnb, and it would rent because there wasn't a lot of inventory. Now, there is an influx of new inventory of short-term rentals. There's so much more competition. And if you're just another property in your market without a unique design, you're not going to stand out. So a design, decor, accents, that goes a long way. How often are you changing pricing? I don't change pricing. My smart tool well, changes the pricing. Okay, so here's the thing. My, the price that was my smart tool yep. changes prices daily. Right. Every week, my business partner goes into the smart tool, reviews logs into it. Price Labs, reviews our, our vacancies, and adjusts our parameters and rules based on upcoming bookings. So on a day-to-day -day basis, it's automated. But every week, we go in and we just see if our you know, rules, our pricing rules are set so that we're booking in this market. For both your own properties and the ones you manage. Correct. So yeah. all of, 
my personal properties, yeah. my business partner's personal properties are all managed the same exact way as yeah. our clients' properties are managed. The same rules, the same systems, the same pricing strategy. And so when my business partner goes into Price Labs every week, he looks at our entire list of um, properties and adjusts prices for the properties that are either booking too fast. If your properties are booking too fast, too your cheap. price too low. Yeah. If your properties aren't booking enough, you're probably priced too high. And if your properties are Crazy. booked where it should be, like, they, like they, Price Labs will color code it. If it's a yeah. like color coded property, like you're in where you're supposed to be, you leave prices alone. If you're a, a small time investor and you were thinking about how do I make this more automated? What would be your, your piece of advice for them? Okay, first and foremost, automate the messaging and automate the pricing. Those are the two things that are so time consuming. Before my business partner and I um, partnered to systematize our business, our short-term rental business, I was doing everything myself. It was all manual. I was messaging the guests myself. I was changing the prices daily myself, and it's a full-time job. Automate the messaging, which you can do on Airbnb itself or through a third-party app like Guesty. Uh, automate the prices, which, again, you could do on Airbnb or through a third-party like Price Labs. If you automate those two can things... Can they integrate into the platforms? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. pri so Price Labs and Guesty, when you update the property yeah. information on those two third-party platforms, they integrate into Airbnb, into Verbo, into Booking.com, and into any other major online platform. So automate those two things. And then the third thing... Um, is create virtual house manuals. Mm. So when people book your place in your automated messaging should be a link to the virtual house manual. In this virtual house manual, which I just use Google Word or Drive. Drive. That's what I use. So I use like I use Google Drive. Here's the link. And it's a simple link that's sent to the person who booked and it's got everything you need to know about the, the property. The address, um, the uh, Wi-Fi information, how to use the thermostat, where all the systems are located. Because um, every property is so unique and if people have questions, they can just reference that for the most part, or if it's not in there, you you add it in there, and your house manual gets more and more in depth as you get more and more bookings and questions. I love it because you're from Newburyport. I had asked you this offline, and you started to tell me a story, and oh, I was I like, I was like you're, "You're gonna have to stop because I want to hear this one live." Okay, okay, so I I I really want a boat in into the Newbury, uh, the Merrimack River, and and everyone tells me it's really dangerous, and so I was just simply asking Sean an authentic question: Hey, do you know much about boating? In, in the river. Now, I used to like wakeboard deeper in the river, like in, in my day, and the current kind of rips there. So I can understand that the mouth of the river can be dodgy. Okay. So can you just quickly tell us about um, the, the mouth of the river? What is, what is it like? And then feel free to give us, you know, any relevant examples. When I, when I moved to Plum Island, I didn't realize how dangerous the mouth of the Merrimack River was. I soon learned, and don't quote me on this, I'm pretty sure it's the most dangerous river mouth this side of the east of the Mississippi River, and like top five in the country. And that's based on how many boating accidents and deaths there are per year. It is, it is dangerous because of how strong the current is and because how unpredictable the currents are when the tides change. Yes. Let me also say, I'm not a boater. I know nothing about boating. And I think living near the Merrimack River makes me want to be less of a boater. Because yes. when, oh. I, when I live on, just this past week, I heard helicopters at like midnight. Stop. Whenever I, whenever I hear helicopters... Outside my bedroom window, I know they're searching for somebody or a boat that's capsized, and it happens countless number of times every summer. We have like a ten to a fourteen foot tide on a normal. Well, fourteen's really high, but we have a we have like an eight to a twelve foot tide in Boston Harbor. That means the water, if you're if you don't understand what I'm talking about, goes up or down eight to twelve feet twice a day. One's higher than the other. Okay, so when you have just think about it, when you have an ocean and a river and they're equalizing at 10 feet. Like, that's why you have locks that, you know, and all these things. And this obviously does not have that. It just has current. It flows like freaking crazy at the mouth. Now, there's this concept called slack tide, meaning it's just at neutral tide. It's when the tides are completely changing, and everything's just, like, kind of chill. Great great time to potentially go to the mouth of the Newburyport River. You know way more about tides yeah. than I thought you knew. Well. He's a, have he's you ever a been to, Have you ever been to the Cut Bridge in Gloucester? Don't think so. Okay, well, uh, do yourself a solid, Mr. Instagram, and follow the Cut Bridge dude on, um, on uh, Instagram. Really? The Cut Bridge is uh, maybe a little bit wider than this room. The and one that gets you into the Anasquam? Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that and one's a scary one, too. It is very scary. Yeah. It is not super wide. And, man, the current freaking explodes in there. And so just imagine a very, very narrow bridge and inexperienced boaters trying to go to the beach. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's like ping pong city. Very funny. I've got, a, I've got a whole bunch of friends that are experienced boaters. They've got no issue going in and out of the mouth. And okay. they, have, they have a blast. They go out of the mouth, they go south 
through Ipswich into Rockport into Gloucester, they have a blast. But I've seen so many accidents, and my parents had an accident themselves. They bought, <laughs> I guess this is the story we're this talking about. This is the story, yeah. So they, uh, gosh, my dad was so excited. He always wanted a boat. And um, he lives on Plum Island, too. We're practically neighbors, which is awesome. So my parents have He's not a listener. <laughs> they've wanted the boat for a while. He finally got his dream boat. It was delivered from Florida. They put it into the marina. They took it out for its maiden voyage, went into the mouth of the river, came back, parked at the marina, had friends over, and a few hours late, later it sunk to the bottom. Ooh. The whole time the boat was out, there was a hole. I, thought, I, don't, I don't know the exact phrase, but there was a hole in the boat the whole time they had, had it out. If it had sank in the mouth of the river, I don't think anyone would have been safe. Luckily, they were It moving. sank at the dock. It sank at <laughs> the dock. Yeah. They had it out for one day. It sank at the dock. More, more so because of like hu- human error. I don't know. Human error than anything. They must have, did they hit something? I think on the journey from Florida to mm. Plum Island, it must have like gone over something and mm. something Correct. cracked. Okay. So this wasn't like a navigation issue. No. However, it might be a blessing in disguise because my dad's not an experienced boater. He's really smart and can learn it easily. But it's sinking at the marina could have been a lot better than an oh, yeah. unexperienced boater 100%. taking it out and like not knowing how to navigate the tides. Does uh, dad have a boat now? No, and he will not get a boat in mm, the Merrimack yeah. River. He wants a boat, but he wants it on a lake or in the Cape Coral Canals. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. All right, new segment. All right, so it's, it's called overrated or underrated. You ready? Ooh. Who gets to answer? Sean. Oh, just Sean? You can answer too. All right. Uh, Salisbury Beach. Underrated. Why? The beach of Salisbury is by far the nicest beach north of Boston and south of Maine. Even Gloucester beaches? The beach itself, not the town. The town has a lot to be re- Bold. a lot to be desired, but the actual beach, the sand, the low tides, the high tides, um, the beach itself by far is the nicest beach north of Boston. Okay. Wow. Plum Island erosion. Underrated. Wow. We've got, we've got erosion challenges, and we've luckily... Did some dredging over the past couple of months and added 400 feet of sand to our beaches. However, it might be a temporary fix, not a permanent fix. And so I, and a lot of the erosion comes from the tides, the drastic tides of the Merrimack. Right. Makes sense. Michael's Harborside. People are going to hate when I say this. I'm going to say overrated. I love it. Thank God. <laughs> tell, t- tell us why. Well, I don't know. I don't go to Michael's Harborside that much. Not to say I don't enjoy it. They got great seafood. However, I'm more of a vibe guy, mm. and I love the vibe across the way at the deck, and I oh love the vibe gosh. from my people at Bar 25 and Paddle In. Underrated, overrated, the deck. Underrated, underrated. My next client event is at the deck. Oh, my God. Are you going to ask me if Hampton's overrated or underrated? Is Hampton overrated or underrated? Hampton Beach, underrated, overrated. Underrated. What? Come on. It's so overrated. No, it's, under, it's underrated because people's perception of Hampton is what it used to be. And it used to be Hampton like, or Hampton Beach? Hampton Beach. Okay. Hampton Beach used to be... I hate to use the word. It like used a carnival. To, it used to be very like I'll, I'll just white trash. Tra- it used to be trashy. Mm-hmm. Now Hampton has developed, and there's really cool businesses there, and there's great nightlife options, and of course it has got its like pockets of like sketchiness still, <laughs> but it's surprisingly a great night out, and there's decent food options, and there's more and more businesses coming to Hampton, and a lot of real estate development. So like underrated. This will probably show up the last time I was there. There was this like really divey place right off old Route 1, Beach Pizza. Incredible. Triplies. That's what it's called. Triplies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beach Pizza. Under- uh, underrated. 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 The big debate up there in the North Shore is regarding Beach Pizza. Are you a Triplies person or a Christie's person? My household's divided. I'm oh, Triplies. I didn't even My know wife's Beach Christie's. Pizza was a thing. There's oh, something about debate. like a sweet Beach Pizza that's just really something else, man. Let me tell you. What pizza. rock do I live under? Okay. Beach Pizza okay. is a thing. You. I yeah. don't even like to eat at the beach because you, you, you get sand everywhere. Didn't you grow up in Nahant? So yeah. like, why would you ever just leave Nahant? They don't have beach pizza. You had you had an underrated overrated. Oh, Tender Crop Farm. Tender Crop Farm is underrated. Great place for produce. Great place for meats. Great place for like, flowers. Uh, a lot of prepared soups. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that made me. Laugh. <laughs> and oh, if you have kids like myself, I got twin girls that are almost three. Uh, they've got farm animals, so you can just go there and bring your kids to the animals, and they'll have an hour of fun. Underrated. Tender crop, underrated. Yeah. Let me ask you two oh overrated or underrated All questions. Right, hit me with it. Chelsea as a real estate market. Overrated. So here's the deal. Um, okay, when you look at Chelsea topographically, you like want it to be significantly more valuable because it sits on the river. You have views of the city, depending on where you're at. There's some pretty cool spots at Chelsea where you get some sick views of the city and the skyline. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not on train transit. It's on bus transit. And 
quite frankly, it's, I, I don't know the stat uh, uh, as of 2023, but I'm pretty sure last year it was w- one of the top most dangerous places in the United States. Okay. So I like to judge communities by when I'm selling to clients is like, would I, would I go for a run at night? And, um, unfortunately I think I would opt out of that. And I know I'm not supposed to say any of these things I don't really care. Um, for that reason, coupled with as an investment, the prices are insane. They're high, right? They're super freaking high. And so when you look at things like that versus Eastie or Revere, for instance, or Lynn or anything up this coast, Everett. Overrated. Saturated. Overrated. Uh, the casino inflated prices so much. Traffic stinks right now. There's going to be a lot more stuff happening there. And, and it's certainly being beautified. But I just I just think that it is significantly... There's better investments closer to the city that I think will have long-term better gains and more stable rents. Give, than, give me two right now. Eastie. Eastie. Underrated. Underrated. Underrated, yeah. Um, Still. I'll, yeah, I'll tell you why. I mean, and listen, there's, there's significant development happening there um i think it's directionally on price with chelsea to a degree depending on where you're at the the i think just the vibe the train the blue line quite frankly is underrated even though right now it's like very shitty um it's one of the it's the newest rail it's one of the fastest i mean we're four stops from the city um i don't know when the last time you were like down on the east boston waterfront is it's bonkers and I think for that reason, the the rents are insane. The commutability is insane. And I think all the, you know, this it's going to be a bumpy next year with like the tunnel and whatnot. But I think for, for all of those reasons, as the city, like the Boston property, you look at prices in Southie, you look at Cambridge, Charlestown, it doesn't matter. Back Bay, South End, they're, they're bananas. And if you just look at what you can, like I have a condo in, in the South End right now, that's 900 square feet for 1.2 million adequately priced you know what is that in in east boston right now it's it's half the price still yeah. and, there, and there's a bunch of units and you can get brand new construction and i think for that reason it's still underrated because all those uh i'd rather be in Eastie than Southie. yep i would agree you know because, what i mean because of value because of value and i well demo to a degree too but um and i would say the other community you're too biased to say this, but I have one. But Winthrop or Revere? I was gonna say Winthrop. Win- I tell all my Boston friends that Winthrop yeah. is so underrated, yeah, and I there's agree. still good value in Winthrop, and you're still so close to everything—the North Shore and the city of Boston. Yeah, but I feel like you hesitate to say it because this is your. I, yeah, I I would say, um, yeah, it's still super underrated. I think it's like a super obvious. Um, you you can you can get new construction condos over there with roof decks in the five six hundred. It's like it's just with parking with a private yard. There's plenty of units on right now, and you can still get a sick single family. Like a, a beautiful single family was just flipped. It sold for nine and a quarter. You know, and it's on like a, a main road. It's not a main road. It's not like a high traffic road. It's super quiet, and you have a huge private yard. You have plenty of parking. And at, at the end of the day, um, you cannot get that anywhere in Boston proper, or quite frankly, even in Chelsea. Mm. And, and Winthrop's a quieter, more safe community. So, anywho, Brandon, close it. Okay, Sean. If you were to boil down the next year into one word to describe what you're going to focus on, what would that word be? Service. Mm. Service is my word. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Because service is something you, I, I talked about this. You can control service, but you can't control the market. I can't control interest rates. I can't control the inventory, but I can control my service to my clients. And if it doesn't result in a lot of business in the next 12 months, that's okay because People will, will remember service, and eventually, when they're ready to buy, I like to tell myself, they'll go to the person that provides good service, and they may tell friends and family about the good service they had. I do that to other people when mm-hmm. I get good 100%. service. And if I get bad service, it's the opposite. I tell them, don't use that person. Mm-hmm. Service, And you tell more people about the bad than you did the good. Yeah, yes. it's true. I, loud, I shout louder when it's bad service. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Service is my word. What's your word? Mine was, I, was it accountability? It was. It was, yeah. That's a good one, too. But both myself and, and those around me and my team. Seth, what's your word? Jeez, now I don't remember. Well, I, just, you don't have to remember. Was it hustle? I think it was. Uh, th- that's what's jumping out in my mind. But yeah, I, I, I think it was going to be accountability, and you said it first. Yeah. Imagine if we combined those three words, <coughs> hustle, accountability, and service. Imagine it should be you, like core values. Imagine yeah. you focus on those three things, how, <laughs> how well-positioned you'll be in 12 months. Yeah. Bananas. The, the nicer version of hustle is drive, and we did make it one of our core values here at Reference. You just got to grind in this business, man. That's what it's about. So Yeah, before I got here, last comment for me is um, 
I'm telling all my, my fellow realtor colleagues that if you make it out of this market comfortably, you're going to be in a really good position because there's going to be a lot of people. I think we talked about there's a yeah. lot of people leaving the business. Mm-hmm. And so keep your head down, serve your clients well, Grind. control what you can control. And then once the market shifts, you're going to be in a really good position. And it's not all about your own business. It's about treating others well because, you know, colleagues and realtors, because it's going to come back to you and you're, it's going to benefit you, although that's not your primary focus, but that's just how it works. Awesome, man. Awesome. It, was, it, was, uh, it was sick having you on. We appreciate uh, you coming down and, uh, and spending some time with us. Thanks yeah, for having thanks me, Thanks for guys. joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's get you up to the deck. Let's do it. All right. Thanks for listening to The Word Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. If you could take a minute and leave us a quick review, not only do reviews give us valuable feedback, but every positive review tells the algorithm to push this episode out in front of more people. If you really want to help us out, send this podcast to someone who you think would benefit. Thank you so much, and we hope to see you next time when we talk about the word.